Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Powell and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this special James Bond-themed episode, Dan defends the gritty, serious Bond played by Timothy Dalton in Licence to Kill to Steve, who feels that Dalton just has a licence to bore. Whereas Steve defends the tongue-in-cheek and light portrayal of Bond by Roger Moore in Moonraker to Dan, who argues that the film should be shot into outer space. Enjoy! Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow. This is a very special episode because it is a James Bond-themed episode. And we're shaking up the formula a little bit because usually I do the highbrow recommendations. Um, Barry Lyndon, the cook of his wife and her lover, uh, killing them softly. But this week I'm going to do what you might call the lowbrow Bond recommendation. I'm going to recommend a James Bond film which is more tongue-in-cheek and comedic, whereas my friend and co-host Dan Slattery will be recommending a more serious Bond, a more highbrow Bond. I'm not sure we could say arthouse Bond, but certainly more serious Bond. Uh, so do you want to take it away, Dan? Okay, thank you. Uh, welcome, listeners. My Bond, and it is a personal favourite, is Timothy Dalton's second film, Licence to Kill. And it was a film of lasts. It was the last uh, one for which Morris Binder did the title sequence. It was the last one scripted by Rich, uh, Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson. It was the last Timothy Dalton film, although he didn't know it at the time. It was the last film directed by John Glenn, who'd done most of the 80s Bonds, and indeed it's his favourite Bond. It was the last film produced by Cubby Broccoli, but it was also a film of firsts in that it was the first not to be shot at Pinewood Studios. It was shot abroad. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. It was also the first to be scored by, and the only one to be scored by Michael Kamen, because John Barry had left the series after The Living Daylights. Now, Licence to Kill, if you haven't seen it, it's a far more gritty, realistic Bond. And it was written with Dalton in mind. Obviously, he, when he came to the series, he wanted to get away from the suaveness of um, Roger Moore, and he wanted to get back to the novels. And as he said, Bond's a thug who kills people and uses women. And that's what he wanted to get back to. Now, The Living Daylights, if you watch it, it's kind of a, it's it's a decent film, but it's it could have been done by Moore. It's not really playing to Dalton's strengths. Whereas after it, Maybaum and Wilson sat down and thought, right, we're going to write a script that matches how Timothy Dalton wants to play the, the role. And they came up with License to Kill. Now, a quick summary of the plot. Basically, um, Felix Leiter is back in it. The same actor who played Leiter in Live and Let Die David Hedison. Now, tell me something, Steve, as a brief aside, how many different actors have played Felix Leiter? I couldn't give you the number, but I, you know, I, I can picture them. Um, you know, the most recent is Jeffrey Wright, who's played him a bit more consistently than other actors. Uh, an actor called John Terry played him in Living Daylights. Um, you know, he's, he's Bernie Casey. They've had two black actors. I mean, the rest are white. The guy from Hawaii Five-0 played him in Thunderball. But basically... They almost had no consistency with Felix Leiter. It would, it would be a different actor from film to film. Uh, and I think this was the first time where... Was it the second time? Anyway, it was it, it, it was it was a rare time where they brought an actor back. And I think mm -hmm. the film benefits from that, having a recognisable Felix Leiter. Yeah. So basically, so Felix Leiter's back. Um, and it's, it's his wedding day. And on the way to the wedding, they just happen to capture a drug baron called Sanchez. And then they have the wedding. And one of the, the, it mentions Bond continuity because they refer back to Bond's wedding and on Her Majesty's Secret Service briefly. 
and they give Bond a lighter. So there's a slight pun there. Felix Leiter gives him a lighter. So it's all well and good, except there's a um, there's a turncoat in the ranks, and Sanchez escapes and comes after Leiter, kills his bride, and feeds Leiter to a shark. And I believe this is a plot line that comes from Live and Let Die, about Leiter being fed to a shark, and the note that's attached to his body, he disagreed with something that ate him. I think it's a plot line from Live and Let Die. So they do feed in from some Live and Let Die. And basically, Bond goes on a revenge mission. So one of the things about Dalton was you notice they were trying to get away from the kind of megalomaniac who's trying to take over the world um, and trying to keep it more realistic. So, for example, The Living Daylights is about opium and is slightly politically confusing in that Bond... It's not the one where Bond teams up with a nice-friendly Taliban to take on the Russians. Yes, um, yes, with the Oxford-educated leader played by yeah. Malik, very well-spoken. Yeah. Um, I guess that's the politics of the time. They weren't to know that was going to date very badly. Yeah. So, um, anyway, this one's a bit more... It's basically Bond goes on the revenge and goes rogue. And why I enjoy this so much is because it's not about megalomania, it's about the purest motive of all, it's about revenge. In the same way I enjoy Skyfall because it's all about revenge. And this is Bond becoming almost as bad as the person he's taking on. And it's a darker thing. Even the kind of whip payoffs delivered by Dalton are done in a very dark way. Like for example, when he gets the rogue CIA agent and feeds him to the shark, he says, you know, you earned it, you keep it. And it's said with real grit in his voice. And there's very little humour, if any, in it, to be honest. And I think it benefits from it. Robert Davi as Sanchez is a very believable villain. He's one of these faces you've seen before. And although he has one of the best lines, I think, in Die Hard, you know, where he goes, Agent Johnson. No, the other one. Um, (laughs) So he's he's very good at deadpan comedy, but he's very good at just being a villain. And a young Benicio del Toro is very good as Dario. In fact, everybody is very convincing as just how absolutely ruthless they are. But Bond is just as ruthless. And that's partly why I like it, because it's getting into the dark heart of Bond. Also, and as a refreshing change, I know Roger Moore was always pushing for Desmond Llewellyn as Q to get more screen time. He gets a lot of screen time in this, because when Bond goes rogue, Uncle Q comes to visit him in the field and give him some gadgets and you know he turns up in a number of scenes and it's good to see Desmond Llewellyn get that screen time and it's also good to see this is why what I like about the Craigs is that it shows the people behind Bond that he's not doing it by himself that he has support one of the reasons for me for example why Skyfall and Spectre work is because you see the others they're not just ciphers that are there to deliver gadgets and uh, pay off at the end, you know, a little quip. And so it's good to see the characters getting fleshed out and the Bond girls in this are quite capable of holding their own. They're not the kind of helpless girly like in, say, A View to a Kill. That was Stacey Sutton, wasn't that the character in A View to a Kill? Where she's just... Mm. Yes. Abs- yeah. abs- absolutely helpless. You just think, oh, God. He's so, supposed to be a geologist, but um, yeah. not entirely convincing as a geologist. But yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. I, I think, yeah. you know, the, of the two love interests, uh, yeah. Carrie Lowell, was it Lowell or Lowell? Um, yeah. was, uh, she was married to Richard Gere and also married to Griffin Dunn. And she she plays a, a tough 
DEA agent yeah who can't hold her own in this and even even the Sanchez's girlfriend uh, is is kind of streetwise and street smart she she does she doesn't love Sanchez by any means but she, you know she's a survivor and she's doing what she needs to do to survive so that's the good parts of it the fact that it is so absolutely ruthless and the there's not too much gadgetry in it and that Bond does go rogue and even at the end you know when he's defeated Sanchez he just He's not happy, he's exhausted, and he's, you know, almost crying. And so it's kind of a bittersweet ending in a way. That's a good bit. Now, the couple of couple of places where it falls down, one, um, John Barry, obviously had left the series, so they got Michael Kamen in to do the score, and it's a perfectly good score. The problem is Michael Kamen had done Lethal Weapon and Die Hard the previous year, and he would go on to do Die Hard 2 and Lethal Weapon 2. Now, obviously, the producers had looked at Lethal Weapon, and this is a very Lethal Weapon-esque bond. And the thing is, Michael Kamen's score is a very Lethal Weapon-esque score. You're just expecting Eric Clapton to point up, you know, pop up at some point. It uses the Bond theme a lot. And just in case you've forgotten you were, th- you were in South America, there's a lot of kind of from Spanish guitar going on as well. So the score is a bit obvious, shall we say. And also because Cayman wasn't involved in writing either the title song or, if you ask me to, the closing song, none of that appeared, none of the themes appear in his score. The thing with Barry getting involved in writing the title songs was he could then reprise them in his score so you'd get a hint of A View to a Kill or The Living Daylights, the song throughout his score, which works. So you don't get that where the composer has had no hand in writing the song. So you notice that very much, for example, in the later Craig ones where you, do, you just don't hear the song again. Then again, with the later Craig ones, the songs aren't much to write home about anyway, so maybe you're being done a favour. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I digress. So it's a very Cayman-esque score, and it does the job, but it is very, kind of, you know, you're kind of getting a Lethal Weapon-esque score. Also, it was one of the Bond films direct, uh, affected by a writer's strike. So Richard, Ma- there's more Michael G. Wilson in the script than there is Richard Maybaum. And unfortunately, in some of the scenes, it shows some of the dialogue's a bit clunky and it's just not as polished as you think it would have been had Maybon been allowed to complete his work. Also, MGM were in financial difficulties, which is partly why it was filmed abroad and not at Pinewood. And it's starting to show in some of the interiors. They look a bit basic, so you can tell there's kind of budgetary issues going on. And that's the, the kind of downside of it. But... A lot of people say it was loss-making. It wasn't. It made $156 million against a $32 million budget. Now, that's not bad. And it's not certainly better. Minutes. Well, you know, that's that's certainly better than, this, than The Man with the Golden Gun, which I believe was a particular low point in the franchise. The problem is it didn't make enough. It didn't make as much as the producers wanted it to make, so therefore it was seen as a, a failure. I mean, I think MGM being in financial difficulty, they were banking on Bond to help them out, and this didn't hit the target. But to say it's a loss-making film is completely inaccurate. So why didn't it work? Well, first of all, I think because it's so dark, people weren't expecting that. I mean, The Living Daylights is getting towards there, but the the villains, especially Jerome Crabbe, are very comic book, you know, and it's some of the gadgetry is a bit kind of fun, and it's still got echoes of Roger Moore, and it's still very lighthearted, and it's still got a PG. Whereas this one, a bit like... Whenever the Doctor Who movie with Paul McGann came out, people looked at it and went, this is nothing like Doctor Who, whereas you then look at New Who, and it's very like the Doctor Who movie. Look at the Daniel Craigs now, how dark they are, how violent they are, how they routinely get certified a 12 or a 12A, 
and then look at this. And this was just ahead of its time. But um, if you're listening to this and you really love the creeds and you haven't seen License to Kill, then you're doing yourself a disservice by not checking it out because where Craig came from and where Pierce Brosnan was obviously pushing to get to in Die Another Day all stems from License to Kill. Now, I just want to talk about, if I may, Steve, about the censorship history on it because it did run into, as you can imagine, given the violence in the movie, it did run into a lot of censorship issues. Now, the producers knew going into this that they were not going to get their PG. This is just before the 12 had come into play. So it was either PG or 15. So they knew they weren't going to get their PG when they were making this, but they were prepared for that. So the, whenever they sent the cut into the BBFC, they were offered an uncut 18, which obviously they couldn't go for, or a cut 15. And the cuts, just looking at the BBFC site here, the whipping of Lupe went completely. There were cuts to Felix Leiter being lowered into the shark tank, Crest being blown up in the pressure chamber, and Dario being crushed in the grinder. So they all had to be cut down. And then there were even further cuts, usually sound effects, like the sound of people being hit by rifles that had to be toned down. Then one of the what happened was the distributors then decided to appeal this decision. And with the 12 coming around, they thought, maybe we can try and get a 12. But they were then starting to miss the summer market because this we're getting into August 89 when the 12 is about to come around. And they've already been five months into the process. And... The BBFC said, well, if you cut it some more, then we can give you a 12. But then in the end, they decided to go with the cut 15. And even watching it at the time, the bit with Felix being lured into the shark tank, I mean, you you hear him shouting and you see the ropes spinning around and around as you know he's being eaten by the shark. And sometimes, again, it's the trick about what you don't see is far more powerful than what you do. Oh, yeah. And the the also the, the prop crest in the pressure chamber, it actually looks very unrealistic when you see it uncut. And you think, actually, we were done a favour by cutting away from that. And Dario getting crushed in the grinder is, you know, as it was released, was like, it was strong enough. I remember seeing this in the cinema and thinking, good grief, I can see one. This has got a 15. Yeah, and not just those scenes. I mean, there, there were other particularly gruesome deaths. I mean, do you want to talk me through a few of the other deaths that you can oh, Yes. <laughs> um, for example, whenever the, is it the Hong, uh, forgive me, it's a Hong Kong um, Secret Service get involved, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think they're posing as triads. They're yeah. undercover. Uh, yeah. So when one of them gets shot twice in the chest, there are kind of bullet impacts that had to be taken out. And then Sanchez's death, you're absolutely right. The kind of shots of the burning man had to be taken out. But even so, that at the end was still kind of quite violent. So it remained in its cut state until 2006 when they were doing the Ultimate Edition DVDs and they thought, let's resubmit a lot of these for, for certification and all the cuts got waived. So the version of License to Kill now on DVD and Blu-ray is the version that the makers intended when they submitted it originally. And I think the same for GoldenEye and a couple of the others got pushed up to a 12, but that is. Whereas, like I say, now you look at the, you know, the Brosnans and the Craigs, and they routinely get a 12, and they're perfectly happy with that. I was watching um, the documentary, Everything or Nothing, which if you haven't seen, dear listener, I do recommend you search, you search out. And Dalton was saying in that, you know, as somebody said to him, this is terrible, I can't take my six and seven-year-old to see this. And he was like, but it's not made for six or seven-year-olds. This is adult viewing this. And so we've made an adult bond which is what I wanted to make. And one quick other thing, it's, its original title was License Revoked, and in a lot of the 
clock reports you see in the behind the scenes footage it says license revoked and Dalton often referred to it as license revoked. But <laughs> test audiences thought in the US thought it referred to Bond's driving license. Now you can just kind of see this scene really, can't you? He's belting along London in the old DB5 and gets pulled over by the police, you know, and they say, all right, so do you know what speed you were doing? Yeah, uh, I'm in a bit of a rush off, so I've got to see of the country. Oh yes, sir, very good. What's the name, sir? Um, Bond, James Bond. Oh yeah, very good, sir. The last person I pulled over told me his name is Mickey Mouse. So, you know, what's... so you can kind of see where they're coming from and that, and of course he turns up late to the meeting and goes, Commander, where have you been? I've just had my license taken off me, sir, but never mind. Yeah. So so you can see maybe why they changed the title. And in fact, license to kill is is for me a better title because of the ambiguity of it. And also in the title song, you can't you can't think of Gladys Knight saying you got a license revoked. It just doesn't work. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work. No, no. Yeah, I can imagine him being pulled over and being forced to take a breathalyzer test. Yeah. And, and yeah. the saying, you've been hitting the vodka martinis a bit too hard, haven't you, sir? Yeah. Who do you yeah. think you are, James Bond? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yes, actually, officer. Um, yeah. So Make him they... walk a straight line and put his fingers on his nose. And... <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, you're lucky you didn't flip that car, sir, like you did in Casino Royale. <laughs> yeah. Um, so world record, I believe. That yeah, it is. Record. Yeah, I don't think they intended it to go quite so many times, but yes, a world record, and very impressive it is too. Um, some impressive stunts in *License to Kill*, but also a fair bit of model work as well. And you know, again, that's what it makes me think it's a few budgetary constraints. But it's still, I mean, it's a good tale. It's well told. A quick aside: the person who directed the promo video for the, the single license to go was one Daniel Kleinman who would of course take over from Mars Binder on the title Bond title oh. sequences um, from GoldenEye onwards so Danny also directed a video in one of the videos for Electric Dreams last week and if you want to see his kind of filmic credentials then I do recommend you check out two videos he did with Howard Jones one called Lift Me Up which went to number one in the States and did absolutely nothing here but it's where Howard Jones is spliced into black and white footage and it's very clever and then another one which didn't do well anywhere was one for The Prisoner the song The Prisoner not the TV theme but there's a lot of inventive use of photographic negatives and freeze frames and stuff going on in that. So you can see where, you know, Daniel Kleinman get his, gets his credentials from. And when you see the video for License to Kill, you you know, he was obvious as to why he got the gig. And he's done a good job ever since, I think, as young Kleinman. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting because you're talking about censorship issues. Mm. Um, with respect to the title sequences, they'd caused censorship issues for some time, you know, decades before this. Mm-hmm. Well, from the start, basically, because they were the they were the thing that were always done last. Mm-hmm. And Morris Binder was a perfectionist, and he wouldn't release it sometimes till the day before the premiere. And it oh. would usually be a royal premiere, so you'd have Princess <laughs> Anne or someone coming along, and the BBFC would go spare because they didn't approve of uh, PG uh, films. Having, you know, in the tell scene, is usually naked women floating yeah. around gun barrels and their various phallic symbols and various yeah. kind of uh, expressions of nudity. Uh, and Bretton Moore says pretty much in his in his memoir that usually Cubby would just make a, a, a donation to a charity, the BBFC's choice. So you think, oh dear, that's probably a, that's probably a chapter in the BBFC's history they'd rather forget. You know, just to, <laughs> just. To, <laughs> just to wave it through but um well i mean your recommendation you know is, is second to none dear boy i mean you, you make it sound absolutely uh 
Perfect. I'm not quite as fond of the film as you are, although, of course, I do recognise a lot of great stuff in it. Mm-hmm. But, but can I ask, because this is one, you're right, there was a bit panned at the time, uh, left audiences underwhelmed, but it's gone through this big revisionism, especially as Craig has been popular and people are beginning to rediscover the Timothy Dalton era. Did you love the film? You say you saw it in the cinema. Did you love it from the first time you saw it? I thought it was different. I think I loved it from the second time I saw it. First of all, I came out and I thought, well, I knew The Living Daylights was slightly different, but I came out and thought, wow, I've seen a different film. Have I even seen a Bond movie? And I think it was when I saw it again. Uh, uh, that would have been on video. I didn't go and see it twice in the cinema. I watched it again, where it got cut even more on video, I should point out. Uh, but then I just thought, no, this I enjoy this. I can see why people don't like it because it's very unbond but no i i like it partly because having had a lot of villains who want to take over the world chin stroking (laughs) and all that this is you know for the same reason i love skyfall it's the purest motive of all it's pure revenge and bond is it's like bond and sanchez are two sides of the same coin and the fact that the villains are so realistic. They're so down to earth. There is none of this chin stroking. You just think these guys are bad. I yeah. mean, really bad. And Bond has to be really bad to to deal with them. Well, I so. assume Sanchez is partly based on Pablo Escobar. I mm-hmm. I would guess. Um, I don't know quite the exact timings of Escobar's reign of terror, but uh, he's certainly got that vibe. Uh, to him so yeah he does feel very realistic yeah Mm -hmm. but i I suppose another question of mine you know just to test the the, i guess the quality of the film i mean you mentioned lethal weapon and die hard and Mm -hmm. yeah i think there are definite influences i guess they were trying to move with the times Mm -hmm. um but to me it feels a bit derivative at times and i think another influence is probably miami vice probably you're absolutely right um but with, with the drugs angle as well and the south american angle i think that's as well you see where had maybon been able to finish the job and then they might have been able to refine it a bit more and make it not quite so derivative i mean quantum of solace ran into the same problem obviously with the writer's strike and were there any other bonds that were affected by a writer's strike well later yeah uh, so, so you mentioned quantum of solace yeah I, I don't know if it was strikes. I know there were big issues with the script for Tomorrow Never Dies. And mm. um, Pierce Brosnan has since said that he's, he, to this day, he's not even sure what the film's about because, you know, you'd come in and they'd say, oh, what are you doing today? And it would change to be frantic rewrites. Mm. Um, and, and I know The Man with the Golden Gun, the script was not ready. And mm. that was rushed in production because this was right at the tail end of Cubby Broccoli, Harry Saltzman's partnership. And Saltzman was in such debt that he wanted a quick a quick movie hit just to alleviate some of his debt uh, and it shows that it's not it's not a thought through a Bond film the usual quality but the writer's strikes I'm not sure about yeah I mean I'm thinking of the violence I mean obviously the, the scenes you've mentioned and I think the special effects guys were like you know um they, they, they didn't expect the head exploding in the pressurised container to be quite so bloody, but when they filmed it, I think everybody felt a bit queasy on the mm-hmm. set. So it was just like, oh, this will never get through. Uh, there's a few of us, there's a guy thrown into the maggots. It's not always shown because, like, when Sanchez catches his girlfriend in bed with the guy at the beginning, he's like, did he promise you his heart? Give her his heart. Yeah. And, and then you see the knife being. And obviously, the um, Felix Leiter's bride, Dalla, they've, they've violated her um mm-hmm. it, it, it's implied and it's just absolutely horrible death uh, you know and i think it shows that 
ladies don't marry a guy in the secret service because Bond lost his bride on his wedding day and Felix loses his bride on his on, a, on his wedding day as well. But, you know, I like the film. I, I think there's a lot of great things in it. I think the tanker chases are superb. I, I do like as well, because even though it's gritty and realistic, I do love the bit where he, let's see, he's, he's, he's underwater, all, all, all the Milton Cress's bad scuba diver guys are about to kill him. And then what does he do? He fires a harpoon, which goes into the seaplane. The seaplane takes off. He skis behind it, somehow gets on the plane, throws the bad guys out and flies away. And you're like, good on you, my son. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Good lad, well done. Yeah. That, that was the other thing as well. One of the reactions that Timothy Dalton had, and obviously to later Moore's, was the you know the sheer amount of standing in mm-hmm. that was going on, especially in a beautiful kill. And it's good to see Dalton doing like he did the skiing behind the plane stuff. Um, he doing as much of his stunts as possible. And again, in License to Kill, he's there. You know, apart from some really dodgy stuff, I think they let him do as much as possible, which is good. I mean, there's the only bit where I just thought really putting the truck in two wheels to um or you know to avoid the rocket I thought okay all right but then doing the the wheelie to get through the fire I just thought (laughs) really um you know it was it was doing so well up until this point um I mean so there's a couple of wince inducing moments in it but there always are on that yeah yeah but, but let me ask you a hypothetical question. And I don't know how much we even know about this. I don't know if it's a question we could ever answer. But what do you think a third Timothy Dalton film would have been like? Because they wanted to do a third before the studio started to go into meltdown. Hmm. Any ideas? Well, again, in the documentary, Everything or Nothing, there's one commentator says, usually three is the magic number. It took three films where people accepted Connery's Bond and the same from Moore. And maybe if Dalton had done a third, then his tenure would be more highly thought of. I believe GoldenEye was written with Dalton in mind. So if you kind of have a little think about GoldenEye, yeah. And you can see the slight edge of ruthlessness in Brosnan and that, but it's been toned down a bit. I think they... Well, it's interesting. Would they have continued along the start path or would they have toned it down a bit? I suspect the third film would have been somewhere in the middle between The Living Daylights and Licence to Kill. I think they probably would have got their fingers burnt on Licence to Kill and thought, okay, well, let's not be quite so violent, but let's not be quite so lighthearted as The Living Daylights and let's try and find some middle ground. And Goldeneye would have been that, if I'm honest. So maybe if you can imagine... Dalton in Goldeneye, that would have been your third Dalton movie. Uh, well, I think that would have been great because I think Dalton would have loved, because now that I think about License to Kill is 89 mm. and it doesn't in any way reference the Cold War because although the Soviet Union officially still existed, I think we knew by 89 that it was all over. Communism was for the Knackers Yard. And uh, so I would, I think Dalton being this kind of classically trained Shakespearean actor would have relished the chance to do those sort of scenes that Brosnan did in M's office and, you know, where they were like, you know, okay, the Cold War's over and, and um, you know, what's our, what's our role, what's our purpose? And, and in a sense, the Cold War ending was kind of refreshing because at least when you've got a clearly defined enemy like the Soviet Union, you know what your enemy is. Russia just went into complete chaos afterwards. And, and there's a lot of that in GoldenEye about we don't really know what's going on in Russia right now. There's lots of organised crime groups. There's lots of former KGB agents with, with nothing to do with except, you know, become crime lords or something like that. And yeah, yeah I think a, a third Dalton movie would have been very good, uh, but it, it was just not to be. Oh, well, I think I'll, I've said all I want to say about, uh, about Licence to Kilt.
Um, that's yeah. what one of the um, the DJs in Radio One used to call it because of the way the backing vocals come in on "License to Kill to Kill." So he used to call it "License to Kilt" all the time. Yeah. Well, I believe you, you used to require notarization to 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 buy a kilt in Scotland. I don't think you still do, but you know, so you really did need a license to kilt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, well said, dear boy. I think that that is a, a, a splendid. Um, a, defense of the work and it makes me want to revisit it and I've always liked it but not loved it and I watched it again around about the time that No Time to Die went out we went to see it and watched a bunch of them again and I was just like well this is a very well-made film and uh, but like you say it just doesn't feel like a Bond film anyway so I, I feel like I've got the tougher job now I've got, <laughs> I've got this I'm not used to this I've got to defend a very lowbrow entry into the into the Bond series okay well, my lowbrow James Bond recommendation of the week is um, Moonraker, which was the fourth film uh, with Roger Moore playing Bond. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the plot, okay? <laughs> the plot is completely ludicrous. Okay, so in the pre-credit sequence, a spaceship which is being being transported on a Royal Air Force craft is is stolen midair. The spaceship belonged to uh, the space shuttle, I should say, belonged to the the Hugo Drax Corporation. Bond is sent in to investigate the Drax corporations, you know, see what they're up to because it's suspected rightly that they've just stolen their own space shuttle. A series of um, scenarios and escapades ensue. Bond goes to uh, California, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Venice, and finally the Amazon jungle, where he confronts Drax at his lair in the Amazon jungle. He finds out that Drax's uh, plan is is to acquire these spaceships and he's he's built a space station which is in space obviously it was already in space and he's acquired this poison which is 100% fatal on humans but doesn't harm animals at all and he's also acquired this sounds ridiculous as I'm describing it but trust me I'm describing it accurately so his plan is to go to space release these the, these poisonous space capsules that will land on earth wipe out the entire human population, and Drax has acquired these genetically, well, perfect Aryan specimens of humans, you know, with absolutely perfect physical characteristics, you know, in terms of beauty, strength, intelligence, presumably. And these people will go back down to Earth once the poison has evaporated, and they will repopulate the Earth. So the plan is so that they'll be the, the human race will be absolutely perfect. Okay, so Bond has to stop them. And the way he stops them is, is that he, he goes into space. He, he, he and Lewis Childs, who is the NASA expert leading lady of this film, Lewis Childs playing Dr. Holly <coughs> Goodhead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they sneak onto one of Drax's space shuttles. They go up into space, they go to the space station and the big final confrontation is, is in outer space. Okay, even as I describe that uh, plot, which is a generous way of putting it, I, I, I'm reminded of why for years and years I hated this movie. I, it was right at the bottom for me with, say, Man with a Golden Gun and, you know, Never Say Never Again um, and Die Another Day. So I'll start with the bad things and then I'll try and end on a positive note with the good things. So the bad things are... Obviously, the plot is ludicrous. It's as you were saying before, it's the megalomaniac who wants to take over the world. And not only that, the other big flaw with this film is that the comedy elements are pushed too far. The, the joke takes away any sense of tension, whereas it used to be, yeah, if a guy is killed, if, you know, the, when the guy is electrocuted in the bath in uh, Goldfinger, 
Connery quips, shocking. The gag would just be a slight alleviation of, of the tension of the scene. Whereas in this, the, the humour, which is quite slapstick and broad, completely dissipates any sense of credibility. Okay, those are the two big flaws. What I'm going to talk about now, I suppose, is, is what I like about it. Well, firstly, the film was made in 1979. So the, the film series was like over 15 years old by now. And science fiction and James Bond in the film series and indeed in the books had always gone hand in hand. So we shouldn't discount it on those terms you know from Dr. No which dealt with the the, the toppling of uh, satellites from you know Cape Canaveral to You Only Live Twice where Bond is seconds away from getting into a spaceship that would have sent him into space so the idea of Bond in space was not new various references to satellites and kind of futurist technology throughout the series so Bond and science fiction go hand in hand and I I happen to know there's doing some research that they'd been toying with adapting Moonraker for some time but I think they had they they'd been a little bit unsure how to do it because they had felt quite rightly are, are the public going to accept Bond in space? But I know you know the uh, television actor Michael Billington who auditioned for Bond a few times in the early seventies. He was doing a TV show called UFO, and he said that Harry Saltzman turned up on the set because he wanted to research the special effects and everything because at the time Saltzman said you know, they're doing Diamonds Forever and Moonraker will be the next one. Now, we know that didn't happen. I think they just kept putting off Moonraker and Moonraker because they just couldn't figure out how to do Bond in space. But then what happens is The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977 was a massive hit, a huge hit, which put the, the film series back on track. And at the end credits where it says James Bond will return, it actually says James Bond will return in for your eyes only. So that was the plan. They still weren't going to do Moonraker. But then along comes a little film called Star Wars. And to put it modestly, Star Wars did quite well. And suddenly there's a huge science fiction boom. And I think Broccoli, by this time Saltzman had left and his Broccoli and his um, stepson, Michael G. Wilson, felt that, look, it's now or never. Science fiction has never been more in vogue than it is now. We've got to do Moonraker. So they did it. Very good director, Lewis Gilbert. It's his third film in the series. And he was known for a wide range of films outside the series, like dramas, like Alfie, to, you know, to, to war films, like Sink the Bismarck. Roger Moore is very much at ease in the role. And I think why I've come to like this film and thoroughly enjoyed it, my last rewatch around the time of No Time to Die, is that... Um, one, as I've got a bit older and I, I take myself and I take the series a bit less seriously, is that um, it moves along nicely. It's a nice addition to the science fiction canon of the late 70s. Secondly, although the plot is ridiculous, you know, Drax isn't that different from Stromberg. I mean, it, sorry, Stromberg, the bad guy in The Spy Who Loved Me, is trying to create an underwater civilization. He's trying to wipe out the world to create an underwater civilization. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous, but it was a spy who loved me, and everybody loved the film, so everybody was like, who cares? So the idea that Drax isn't particularly more ridiculous than Stromberg is, uh, so I can't really fault it for that. In the novel, which is, I think, one of Fleming's best novels, it, it only takes very kind of loose elements of the novel, but in the novel, Drax is a Nazi he'd fought for Germany in the, in the Second World War and all, the, all of his men are Nazis and they develop a hint of Aryanism, well, more than a hint of Aryanism in terms of what Drax is trying to achieve. Well, another reason I love it is the biblical elements of the story. So when Bond goes to the Amazon, there's a wonderful sequence where 
outside of Drax's lair, he's kind of lured in by beautiful women. And it's this, this kind of Garden of Eden vibes. I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> we forget the Garden of Eden, I suppose, was quite sexual according to the Bible because, you know, it's where sex was invented. And you see all these beautiful women luring Bond in. And then, of course, he, he's tricked. He's, he's thrown into a pool and he has to fight off a anaconda and there's obviously links there to the serpent in genesis and then of course when um one bond and uh, lewis charles dr goodhead is approaching the space station bond says the animals went in two by two and he says this operation is basically noah's ark uh which is exactly what drax is trying to do he's disgusted with the world so he's trying to wipe it out you know and start again with a clean slate and and there is there's something kind of really genuinely creepy about the kind of Drax's kind of Aryan couples and I believe there was one scene that they shot which never made it to the final cut where there's a there's a mating room in the spaceship and you have all these people floating around <laughs> doing a little bit of intergalactic rumpy pumpy but maybe it's probably for the best that that scene didn't make it because that's a bit more Barbarella isn't it basically I prefer now I prefer the space sequences the space sequences are beautiful and like I say the biblical John Barry's score is is peerless it is basically a space opera but with elements of ballet and the film gets a lot more serious in space in fact it's probably more credible in space I prefer it as science fiction than the earlier sequences, like I think there's an Amazon boat chase where Bond is just pushing buttons and the bad guys are getting blown up. And he's like, well, if you're not doing anything, you're just pushing buttons and gadgets. That's not the Bond I like. But when it gets to space, it gets really good. So it, it's a guarded res- uh, recommendation for me. You know, it's a lowbrow recommendation. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling you everything um, that um, there's wrong with it but everything that I also enjoy about the film thoroughly enjoy about the film it's definitely not my favorite it's not it's not my favorite Roger Moore I prefer I think after this the film made a huge amount of money it was the it was the most commercially successful Bond film up to that date but I think the fans and the filmmakers afterwards after they kind of dusted themselves off were like okay what were we thinking you know I think we've got to have a rethink and sure enough the next Bond film when they finally got around to making for your eyes only they brought back a lot of grit and a lot of um, genuine espionage um, you know the um, decent stunts and less humor and uh, the, 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 the kind of tricks and trade of espionage and, and that's considered one of Roger Moore's best and I probably agree with that but there you are a, a lowbrow lovingly made <laughs> recommendation of Moonraker and uh, and now I wait with bated breath because I know you, I know <laughs> this is not your favorite so you know give, uh, give me your worst <laughs> right you see I have this theory that the odd numbered Moore ones are the better ones so for example live and let die it's great mam of the golden guns a disaster spy love me is great this one is just a disaster for reasons we'll get to for your eyes on me is great <laughs> what's happening oh octopusy it's yeah. just and and I actually like I mean I, maybe for another time but I actually have a lot of time for a video kill although it is terrible I just there's certain kind of charm to it but yeah. anyway to get back to I was watching this and then I watched the spy who loved me and I thought this is just a rewrite of the spy who loved me yeah I mean yeah. like you say it's it's somebody trying to create a, a utopia Drax's is in space Strombos is in the ocean to be fair, though, I think Drax is a better villain. He gets better lines like "Entertain Mister Bond." See that some harm comes to him, uh, you know. And the actor is better than the one playing Stromberg. 
And also, Steve, for a two-hour movie, they don't actually get up into space for 90 minutes of it. I mean, the big selling point is James Bond in space, well, only for 25% of the movie. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. And also, as well, you tend to find when franchises are in trouble, they go into space. So, for example, Hellraiser 4 is Hellraiser in space. Friday the Jason X is Friday the 13th in space. The joke about the third machete film which is, I don't think it's going to be made, but it's going to be Machete Kills in space. So the fact that this is James Bond in space, it's just, oh my goodness. Yeah, but I think they were walking a tightrope there because they knew we've got to go into space, but we also know that a lot of fans, a lot of the hardcore fans aren't going to like that. So they tried to please everyone, which is never good because when you, when you when you try to please everyone, you end up usually pleasing no one. But mm. yeah, well, what, what can I say? But so do, do you agree with me, though, that the space sequences are a bit more involving than the earlier sequences, like the, the gondola, which drives through the the square, the, 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 you know, the piazza in Venice and some of the kind of wince inducing moments? Oh, yes. I mean, the pigeon double take, which has its own hashtag, I believe. I mean, I just thought, oh, you know, yes, and the gondola, I just thought, oh, my goodness. This is just ridiculous. And yes, the boat chase where all he does is push buttons and mines come off the back of the boat. You know, you just think there's no effort here at all. So, yes, I take your point on that. But yes, the pigeon double take, I just thought, oh, how did that even get through? Yeah. But there were little, there were nice little space references though, like the Close Encounters of the Third Kind reference. You know, the the key to the door goes. Bah, 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 bah. I just thought that was a good little space reference there. So there are some good bits in it, and it does have some humour. But and the the other thing which really annoyed me, and in fact, this is License to Kill is just as guilty of this. Why is it, Steve? You know, in Moonraker, he's he's being held by a desk, and on that desk is a big button that says, don't push this button. If, <laughs> if the station is a, don't push this button. You know, big letters. There it is. Don't push this button. What do you think Bond's going to do? Of course, he's going to push the button like a five-year-old and go, why shouldn't I push this button? Oh, look, I've just turned off the artificial gravity. Whoops. But <laughs> yeah. the thing is, License to Kill has the same thing, an errant test tube full of, the, you know, liquid, suddenly the whole underground lab's up in flames. Um, Quantum of Solace, don't forget, somebody reverses a Jeep into something and then the whole place goes up. And yeah. GoldenEye, somebody's pen, sets off a chain reaction of explosions. So uh, the problem I have with the eats of villains' lairs is why are they so vulnerable? They're meant to be impregnable and then suddenly all somebody has to do is tip something over or press a button and all hell breaks loose. They got ripped off by the contractors, I think. You know, well, that's what I'm saying. A bunch of cowboys, yeah. I, I, yeah. Funnily enough, because this is science fiction, I have the same problem with the Death Star mm. in, in Star Wars. The Death Star always seems to blow up with the smallest, you know, you know. usually there's a, a tiny explosion within it, and then suddenly the whole thing's gone. I was just mm. like, do these people not realise, like, say if there's an explosion on a battleship or or, or, or anything of a genuine size, is that you tend to isolate that explosion. <laughs> and and I don't, why have they not figured that out in space? And then, first of all, I'm not sure, I'm, you know, I'm not a physicist, but the science of it, you're seeing the, you're seeing the space station blow up and there's fire and stuff. And yeah. From the outside, I was just like, I'm not sure there's no oxygen, so how would that work but anyway I, I i think sometimes it's better not to ask too many questions um i mean the spy love me yeah you're right it's an absolute remake and of course probably the most divisive part of it is that they bring jaws back hmm. uh, and the the reason i mean jaws had been great in the spy love me and i was listening to an interview richard keel did only a week or so before he died 
in which he said that, you know, he had to fight hard for that role because Kirby Broccoli just wanted to hire a stuntman. And he said, no, you need an actor, otherwise the audience won't remember him. And he'd been extremely popular. Ironic, despite being a bad guy who dispatches people in the most brutal way, you know, he's biting out their necks, he's going for the jugular. He'd been extremely popular with children. And they'd written letters, apparently, saying they wanted to bring Jules back. I think it was just one of those post-production things in Spy Love Me when they thought, can we just do a shot of Jules somehow swimming out of the, um, you know, the underwater thing, which is being blown up, just, just a hint that he's survived, he might come back. Because they just had a feeling that they could get some more mileage out of him. So they bring him back. And he has a few moments where he's scary. I think the scene at Mardi Gras where he's got the woman cornered is, is genuinely scary because it's set down a back alley and it's got all sorts of kind of nasty sexual overtones. But then he goes a bit soft because he gets himself a girlfriend. And, uh, <laughs> and she's a very good looking woman. And of course, when he's on the spaceship with her at the end, the, the problem is the way Bond makes Jaws an ally all of a sudden is obviously Jaws is an Aryan and his girlfriend is an Aryan because she's got glasses, so she's short-sighted. And he's got metal teeth. So, he, yeah, he, he says, he drops some Nazi soul heads saying that uh, to Drax, like, sorry, you know, you're not Aryan enough for Drax. And then suddenly the tables are turned. It's, it's all completely ridiculous. You know, and, and I think in a very cynical way, they, they set out to achieve what they wanted to, i.e., which was to make a, a, a big, grossing film, not necessarily a good film. And the only film, the film that finally outgrossed it, that, that beat the record it set in the Bond series, was another awful one. Actually, far more awful than Moonraker, Dying of a Day. Oh. Yeah. And I think if, if you watch Dying of a Day, you get the same cynicism. You get, like, we know this doesn't make any sense, the invisible car. I mean, I'd say Dying of a Day is much worse. I would never go to bat for that. But I don't know. It brought the audiences in. But, but it upset the fans. And I think... Barbara Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson, afterwards they start to think, especially in the post-9-11 world, we, we can't carry on making these cartoonish, you know, films when, when the, the world feels like a much more serious uh, place right now. We've got to do more serious threats. Well, you see, there's another one where it starts off really well and you think, oh, this is going to be another dark bond. This, look, he's going to be tortured during the title sequence. Yeah. And then after all that, he just walks into a hotel, shaves off the beard and all's well, again, you think there's a wasted opportunity. But whereas with Moonraker, I could kind of put up with it until the double tape pigeon. I just thought, please. The introduction of the invisible car, I just thought, oh, that's just lazy, that. Yeah. That's just heading back to the 60s. <laughs> CGI yeah. tsunami and everything. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Just, this, it deserves an episode all of its own, just die another day. But the, the other thing about Moonraker was out of the three Shirley Bassey themes, that's the weakest for me, and especially the disco version at the end. I just thought, oh no, this is just awful. Make it stop, mind you. The kind of disco version of nobody loves, nobody um, does it better at the end of the spy love me. It's just as bad. You think, oh, stop, please make it stop. It. <laughs> so, well, look, the seventies were their own time, did boy. And, yeah, I know. I know. I mean, some might disagree with me, but I think maybe the eighties have held up better than seventies, uh, <laughs> but. You know, I've been trying to think more things to recommend. I like, I mean, the film is kind of tonally inconsistent. So whatever you like about the Bond films, whether you like the darker moments or whether you like the more comedic moments, the tone is so all over the place that, you, mm -hmm. um, that you're probably going to get what you want, but then you're going to get a sudden shift. I mean, I think the opening 
stunt, the pre-title stunt where Bond is booted out of the airplane without a parachute and he managed to steal a parachute one of the bad guys is really, really good. But then it kind of gets ruined because Joe shows up and there's, there's a gag about him, I think, ripping out the cord of his parachute without opening it. And the ongoing gag is that Joe's can't die, which was mm-hmm. kind of chilling in the spider of me here gets annoying you know he falls into um into a carnival um, circus or something and he, the, the, the net the net says and then he goes over the waterfall and mm. you know, think how could he survive that oh you know what that reminded me of i mean a film that came much later which was indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull oh god i oh, think boy. they go over the exact same waterfall yeah um uh, and and uh, oh, okay, yeah, bad movies here. Oh no, what a terrible film! Although I have to say, um, Hugh does get a great finish line, you know, in um, Moonraker. Oh, I do believe he's attempting re-entry, sir, uh, which is you know, which is on a par with uh, oh, just keeping the British end up, sir. And, you know, yeah. In the spy, love me. So yeah. at least there's you know, and of course, Holly Goodhead. I mean, how did oh. Well, my you, I mean, Pussy Galore is bad enough, but only good. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and there's that to laugh at, I don't know, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I think here's, here's the thing. In the 60s, when Sean Connery you know, debuted as Bond, Bond actually set a precedent. There hadn't really been that many great fictional spies. There'd been Bulldog Drummond, and he'd been very popular on the screen. But the thing, the Bond films came along, they were huge. They were part of the swing in the 60s. Sean Connery himself said that he couldn't handle the fame because... The only thing you could compare it to was the Beatles, and there were there were four of them. There was only one him, so he, he really couldn't handle it. And there were a lot of in the sixties, a lot of terrible imitators. The Spy Five films, you know, the Dean Martin, Matt Helm films, and dozens of others. By the time you get to the seventies, the series had started to run out a bit of steam, and they started to imitate other trends in cinema. They weren't trendsetters anymore; they were imitators. So. And sometimes they did it successfully, like Live and Let Die, Black Exploitation, uh, Man with the Golden Gun, Fu Manchu, and then Moonraker, Science Fiction. Uh, later, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. A View to a Kill is very much inspired by the kind of MTV music video craze of the era. Um, and of course, License to Kill as the Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Miami Vice fight. If, if, if you watch them in the context... Of, of that, then you can forgive it for its 70s, you know, silliness. Again, the Bond films, which have pioneered car chases in films, by the time you get to late 70s, you've got other films like Smoking the Bandit, cleaning up at the box office. So suddenly the car chases have become a bit more comedic, or, or, or in this case, the gondola chases, because people didn't want those French Connection really exciting car chases anymore. They wanted more comedic smash them smash them and crash them type chases and you know some of those elements have not aged well um, but it's, it's always interesting to watch the bond films and think okay which ones are the cold war ones which ones the post-cold war now post 9-11 and of course now we're in the age of covid or hopefully the age of post-covid and where did they take the series from here didn't roger Moore get himself into a spot of bother uh, when he appeared in the cannibal run yes yes yeah because um I've never seen the full thing. I've seen bits of it and it seems kind of like fitfully amusing, but he's driving an Aston Martin. He was told that it was the, the genuine Aston Martin Sean Connery driven in Goldfinger. And obviously the whole thing is a Bond parody. And yeah, since then, 
the producers have been very careful about what their Bond star does in his other roles. They don't like him to wear a tuxedo or anything, or you know, or be a hero. They've been a bit precious about that. I, I don't know if that will still stick because you know they're not they're not making one film every two years now. It's, it's much slower production. You know, they've partly because they've had studio problems, partly because I think Barbara Broccoli has, has kind of lost interest and started doing other things, which which worries me a bit. I mean, certainly Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson had a big crush on Daniel Craig and gave him a producer credit. I think on I think it was Spectre he had a producer credit, or associate producer or something like that. Um and um and they they've just produced his version of Macbeth on Broadway. Um but look, I'm guessing most people by now have seen No Time to Die. So if I can give a slight spoiler, well, you know, No Time to Die, <laughs> he died. Bond Bond has died. I don't think that's a secret anymore. Uh, so, so where do you think they're going to take the, the Bond series from here? If you look at the um, Bonds, first of all, I mean, when you've got Sean Connery plays him quite straight and then you've got Roger Moore is basically playing the saint, playing the Bond, then you've got a more kind of thuggish Bond in Dalton, you've got slightly more jokey Bond in Brosnan, then Craig's going down the kind of straight line. I think, first of all, the new Bond will be a bit more lighthearted and a few more quips to the camera, you know, and yeah. a bit like that. Um, I think they may just say, like when they rebooted Halloween, they just say all, all the previous ones just didn't happen. Yeah. We're just back to Grand Zero, and and we'll remake um, Thunderball or Goldfinger or something like that. I, I mean, at some point they probably will have to just get around to remaking the classics, and I think they're really heading into trouble when they do that. But um, I don't. Yeah, know. I, I think that would be a bad sign if they did that. First of all, no more Thunderball remakes, please. We've already had Never Say Never Again, so that's enough. Gosh, I, it wouldn't bother me if they had a more lighthearted. Bond and yes, they do seem to go in a cycle. They, they, they seem, seem to swing between the two. And when I follow Bond fans on Twitter and stuff, I will say that a lot of people are beginning. It, it didn't bother me the ending of No Time to Die when I saw it. Uh, in fact, I thought it was quite good. I was quite impressed. Um, but the trouble is, I'm not sure if how you, how you can continue the series after everything Craig has done. He's pretty much. You know, he's, been, he's become a father and he, they show him, it's an origin story, so they show him getting his double O status. Uh, he doesn't marry, but it feels like he's a married man because he's much more monogamous than Bond used to be. So Craig just did a lot, and I don't think he's left more space, for much space for a new actor. Um, they tend to go with unknowns. They don't like, um, they don't like big stars. They like someone who's kind of, the ideal age, I think, would be late 30s, early, uh, early, early 40s because, you know, he's supposed to be a Royal Navy commander, so he can't be, like, 21. This is a guy who's who's lived a little, you know. I don't think particularly the female audience wants a baby-faced Bond. They want someone who's, who's been around the block a bit. If he's a bit more lighthearted, yeah, I think they could work with that. A few years ago, Hugh Jackman probably would have been a good choice for, for a lighthearted Bond. I mean, there's been lots of great actors who, who narrowly missed out. So Sam Neill, they've gone down the route many times of, toying with the idea of an American Bond. I think John Gavin had signed to be Bond. Really? They had to buy him out of his contract because it was Diamonds Forever. They wanted Connery back. James Brolin auditioned. He did a great audition. A lot of these auditions are on um, YouTube. They they always have him. 
the audition scene they use is a scene from, from Russia with Love where he comes home to his hotel, he thinks it's an assassin, but it's, it's actually uh, Tatiana has, has climbed into his bed and is waiting for him. And that's a good scene because obviously you've got to be kind of sexy and dangerous and you've kind of got to run the gamut of, uh, of the emotions Bond has, has on offer. Um, but, but, but quickly, dear boy, maybe a quick fire, best Bond of, of, of every actor. So for each actor, their best movie. Uh, okay, Connery um, from Russia with Love. Lazenby, well, we'll just draw the discreet veil. Moore, either Living at Die or the, or the Spy Love. I'm going to go with Living at Die, actually, because mm-hmm. the theme's pretty good. Dalton, License to Kill, obviously. Brosnan, oh my God. Um, I have, you know, love, no love, love lost between me and Brosnan, I tell you. Um, Goldeneye, probably. And then Daniel Craig, Skyfall. And you? Yeah, I'm torn. Um... I'll try and be, I mean, I love, I absolutely love From Russia With Love. That's probably the best written Bond film of the moment. It's also a classic spy story. But I will go a little for Goldfinger, I think. Uh, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah because that has just the right amount of success and kind of flamboyance. Uh, although I, I don't think they could make, they'd have to, if, if they do go down the route of remakes, they would, they'd have to remake it a bit differently. Because if you watch the film closely, Bond spends a lot of the film locked up. He's Goldfinger's prisoner for most of the film. And I, I just don't think they'd uh, they'd allow that today. On Her Majesty's Secret Service has been, you know, um, revised and um, obviously has a lot of merit to it. For Roger Moore, it, it, it's a tough one. I'm going to go with For Your Eyes Only as his most serious Bond and example of what he could do when, when he wanted to be more serious. And I will slightly differ with you. I prefer Living Daylights, I think, for Dalton, it's got a romanticism to it. It's got a sense of adventure. It, it's got humour, not so much humour where it's kind of drowning the film, like some of Roger Moore's ex- excessive ones, but enough humour that that it engages you. And I also think the love story in that with Marianne Diabo as, as uh, the cellist is, is, is particularly kind of resonant. Brosnan, that's an easy one, Goldeneye. And Craig because I'm part of this slightly grumpy crowd that has become slightly disillusioned with No Time to Die, I will go for Spectre. Spectre, I felt, was a wonderful one with a lot of romanticism to it and a lot of sweeping landscapes and, and, and stuff like that. Of course, times have changed and the exoticism of the Bond films, at least before COVID, were kind of losing because, you know, when the Bond films came out, people didn't travel much. So a Bond film was a pretty easy way to see the world. And in the age of EasyJet, I guess you know, it's pretty easy to spend a weekend in Paris or whatnot. But I, I felt Spectre had just a wonderful romanticism. The relationship with Madeleine Swann was, was very good. But, you know, you know, tomorrow I might say something different. I, you know, you could easily look at Craig's and say Casino Royale. Um, it's gritty. It's got a great story. It's, it's, it follows the book. Eva Green, relationship with Eva Green, and yes, Vespa Lind is really good. Or, or you could just spin bottle and say, well, Spy Who Loved Me is, is Roger's best because it's, again, good love story. That seems to be quite vital if he's got a good leading lady and she's not just eye candy and she's or with some kind of double entendre name. You know, if she's yeah. got something to do. Um, oh, just keeping the British end up, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is great. I've always, I always love talking about James Bond. It's been it's been a huge part of my uh, cultural upbringing, and I, I have very fond memories of watching them as a kid. And and I suppose 
I, I enjoyed defending a Roger Moore film because when I was growing up, the Roger Moore films were just on TV constantly on a loop. Uh, if you want to watch a Bond film, guys, uh, I assume most of you have probably got an Amazon Prime account. They're all currently on Amazon Prime, so they're, they're pretty easy to rediscover because demographically, Bond fans, uh, Bond fans were, were an aging demographic, which is rather worrying. You know, 20-year-old or slightly younger filmgoers today, they've been brought up on Marvel and DC films. And um, I, I couldn't discuss them to a fanboy level. I think, you know, some of them are perfectly fine. But I think younger fans know less of the series. They know the Daniel Craig series you know, who was Bond for five films, but 15 years. And that's mm-hmm. that's a good length of time. That's your, uh, that's that's anybody's youth. So if, if you're a younger Bond fan and, and yeah, you've yet to discover the series, go back, watch License to Kill, watch Moonraker, forgive Moon, Moonraker for its sins, as, as, as it will try to forgive those who have sinned against it. <laughs> uh, and uh, yes, you can't beat a bit of Bond, especially on a Sunday afternoon or something like that. Yes, it's nothing like a classic Bond movie, and Moonraker's nothing like a classic Bond movie, but... Yes. I, I, I probably can't, uh, I can't argue there, but it, it's, it's been fun to argue the, the lowbrow choice. I didn't realise how difficult it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to go back to being highbrow next time? Yes, yeah. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our healthy debate that your interest in Bond has been indeed shaken and stirred, and you maybe go and check out one or indeed both of the movies. I think it's back to normal for next time. Steve will be highbrow and I'll be lowbrow, but what we'll be doing, we'll keep it a little secret for the time being anyway. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Highbrow and Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.